Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Canada's 43rd general election is over and the country has returned a hung parliament. Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party will hold on to power, although they now find themselves governing with a minority government. That means that the Prime Minister will have to cooperate with opposition parties to pass legislation and to maintain power. The good news for Trudeau is that he has options. With 157 seats, he can cooperate with the Conservatives, the New Democrats, the Bloc Québécois, or some mix of them issue by issue. Today, my guest is Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We'll discuss what those issues may be, whether this government will be good for Canadians, and at what cost. So, let's start here. What do you think the priorities of the government will be in the next parliament? I think if you take the Prime Minister at his word, his first uh, press conference after the election, he said he wanted to pass the the income tax cut, the universal tax cut, and he also uh, mentioned Trans Mountain. So um, those are two things. It's a little bit different than what we heard on election day from a lot of pundits suggesting that, um, you know, if you if you want to start uh, aggregating votes, that there's a lot of interest in progressive uh, plans, things like, uh, you know, National Pharmacare, um, you know, other sort of big ticket spending items. So I guess it depends who you, you believe, uh, you, the, the received wisdom about, you know, aggregating how people voted or what the prime minister said himself. Uh, and he said tax cuts in a pipeline, which uh, may surprise some people, but uh, it won't surprise you to know our group's okay with that. Well, in which case the conservatives will probably support him though, right? Yeah, I think they will. And I think they should. And I know um, it's interesting. Uh, there's this sort of assumption that they're always going to be at loggerheads, but it's a minority government. I mean, uh, they are the parties that got the most votes combined between the two of them. They got two thirds of the votes. Uh, so I think it makes sense. And I think the conservatives frankly would be foolish. I mean, can you, imagine the Conservative Party not supporting a tax cut, which is very similar, by the way, to the one they ran on. So I think it would be extremely foolish for them not to back them on it. And the same goes for the pipeline. I mean, they're the only ones that could back the government on the pipeline. Um, And again, they've made so much hay out of this issue themselves. I think it would be very strange for them to not support the government on it. Yeah, even the, I mean, in the minority years under Stephen Harper, the Liberals voted with the government 150 times or something like that. I mean, it would be unprecedented to see that happen. Now, so, now let's get into this point. Now, we're going to start to introduce more debate into this debate podcast because so far it's been (laughs) me agreeing with progressives, uh, which, you know, feels fantastic, but doesn't fuel the debate requirement. Um, now, I don't think the priority should be tax cuts. Mm. Uh, I have I like the progressive spending agenda, um, but I wonder, you know, is it what the country needs when you've got 60% of voters who are supporting pharmacare, 60% of the voters who are supporting, um, uh, well, I mean, some of them dental care sure. and so on and so forth, uh, affordable cell phone bills and so on. Yep. Is a tax cut what we need? Well, it's fun with math, right? 67% of voters voted for parties that wanted a tax cut, right? 67% voted for parties that backed the pipeline. So (laughs) I think when you get into this game of sort of, we're just going to, we're going to add up all the votes from the parties that have similar platforms. The reality, David, is people vote for parties for all kinds of different reasons. Tell me about it. And and that's the danger, right? Like, I I don't deny um, that uh, there's obviously interest in these issues and people obviously feel strongly about them. But if we're going to play that game, and like I being a bit facetious, like I support the, the tax cut and the pipeline because I think they're good things. Um, the fact I only use that stat because that seems to be what people on the other side are throwing at me. And look, everybody knows a minority parliament is about compromise. I'm certainly I don't expect to get everything I want to see out of this parliament. I think, for example, spending is going to be higher than I would like. Um, but that also means that people on the other side are, are going to have things they, they don't want to see, um, like the pipeline. So 
if, if we really mean it when we talk about uh, putting some water in our wine, you're going to get, the great thing about a minority, especially from my point of view, is you'll get some things you want, you still get some stuff you don't want, but you're, you're probably going to see so, at least something that you want. Well, let's talk about spending and, and tax cuts uh, versus program spending. Yeah. I mean, we when programs come up, pharmacare, dental care, we say, how can we afford it? Yeah. When tax cuts come up, we never say, how can we afford it? Well, you're right that some people look, look the other way, and you don't have to look further than south of the border for that, right? Yes. You've got yeah. a party that's all about tax cuts but, but doesn't care about the spending. Um, I like to think our group uh, is not like that. Of course, we're not the ones running for office, so it's easy for us to say. But uh, you know, we are concerned about the spending side. We were con- we've been concerned for the last four years. We were concerned when Harper was running deficits. Yeah. Um, and so I think there does need to be a conversation about that. I think one of the frustrations that we have is um, there are ways sometimes, believe it or not, to deliver the same serve or same or better services without spending more money. Yeah, I do agree that there are instances where you need to spend more money to get more stuff, but it's not a straight line. And there are plenty of examples where you know, look at healthcare. There are countries that spend less per capita in public dollars and get better results than we do. So I don't think it's a simple matter of saying, well, we just need to throw more money at it. Uh, sometimes you need to spend more money, but Saying we all, you know, uh, more money is always going to make whatever we're delivering better, I, I think is a, is a little bit simplistic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with you on that. But I wonder if ultimately the concern is people ought to have money in their pocket to yeah. navigate the world. I mean, I agree with that. You agree with that. Um, that we shouldn't be wasting money. We both agree on that. Yeah. Um, you know, when we look at the healthcare system in this country, we see that it's not complete. I mean, it, yeah. people go bankrupt because of pharmacy costs. People um, spend, go into debt because of dental costs. Yeah. I mean, it's not a complete program. I mean, can we not imagine a, a system that is more efficient under a public system like pharmacare um, than, than the current one? Or even for that matter, childcare. I mean, we, we just saw numbers. Um, you know, that suggests that childcare can pay for itself a good childcare scheme. Um, you know, we can do more collectively with those programs than we can by having an extra 150 bucks in our pocket at the end of the month. Well, I mean, you asked me, can can I imagine putting the words public and more efficient in the same sentence? I can imagine sure. it. I, 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 you know, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that's always wishful thinking. Look, take pharmacare as a good example. Yeah. I think that when we look at... Uh, the reality today, which is something between, you know, where you stop counting 70 to 85% of Canadians are covered, they have a good plan. The real problem that we're all struggling with is that last 10 to 15%, right? We all agree, especially when you got these situations with, uh, you know, a family that has, uh, they need catastrophic drugs, cost 100 grand a year. I think that's totally fair game in terms of talking about targeting resources of those people, finding programs that address that problem. What I have more difficulty with is saying, well, we have a system that works well for like 80% of people. So what we're going to do is we're just going to wipe out the whole thing and then we're going to rebuild from scratch. And I think if we were starting from like zero state, maybe you build a, you know, you have a farm care as part of your broader public system. But right now you're talking about sort of taking away something that works pretty well for most people. It's a bit like saying, well, some people use food banks and food bank usage is on the ride. Let's get rid of all the grocery stores and let's have the government buy all the food because that would be more, I mean, it just seems a little too grandiose. Um, and we've also seen examples where the cost 
you know, CTF put out a, a pretty detailed study about this during the election. We hired an accounting firm to crunch the numbers. There's a lot of assumptions about the farm care. Like one, for example, the single buyer assumption. Uh, a lot of that uh, has already taken place. There is already coordination between governments. Yeah. And it also takes a long time. Uh, negotiating these prices for drugs. I mean, at the current rate, you're talking like a decade, two decades. So it's not like you're going to start realizing that yes. saving overnight. Uh, and then the other is the the spike in demand. Um, you know, there are there are cases, uh, and I'm not saying people shouldn't should not take drugs when they need to take them, but there are cases where it's sort of on the line. You could or you couldn't. Everybody knows when you make things free, and remember it's part of the carbon tax debate, yeah. right? If you make it free, demand's going to spike. And as we've seen in some in some other cases of public programs, if you lower the price to zero, you're going to see uptake jump, jump dramatically. Sure. And that means a much higher price tag than people are proposing. So, and then suddenly you're at the point where, well, if we're not actually saving money on this, what, why would we not have been better off saying, we'll leave the, we'll let the private sector cover most, and then we'll make sure that our scarce resources target that last 15, 20% of people who, who need the help. This was the conservative pledge effectively. Yeah, loosely. I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah. Frankly, not that familiar with the specifics of their pledge, but it was sort of saying, let's, and I agree that we should focus the resources on the people that need them and not worry about the people who are doing okay already. Right. Yeah. Uh, w- I mean, which which is compelling, assuming you can get proper buy-in. I mean, so my concern with the plan uh, is getting provincial buy-in. Mm-hmm. I'm worried at the provincial end more than, than the federal sure. end. I mean, I like the idea of a universal single-payer system. I, I agree, it takes a long time to start paying off. You do induce some demand. Um, those are costs I'm willing to pay because, um, for one, it ensures everyone gets covered. Two, it creates some sort of national connection to to something. I mean, you know, well, we often we often ignore how important those things are. Though, I mean, medic. You ask Canadians what they care, what they value about the country, is they'll say healthcare number one, typically, or, or top few. It creates a you know a, 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 not just a safety net, but also a sense of, of belonging to something. Broader, sure. but I'm worried that the federal government gets held hostage by the provinces who say, "Just give us the money." Well, when does that ever happen, David? Though, really? No. <laughs> well, this is this is my concern: is that in the moment, can we can we get it through in a moment when when you have to deal with national unity issues in at least two regions in Quebec and in Alberta, Saskatchewan? I don't think right at, at this point, David. I do not think that you could get the premiers to agree on pizza toppings. Yeah, so that's the, that's the challenge. And well, I mean, you could get them to. Well, you you would have quite the pizza. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, we'll have one quarter this, one yeah. quarter that. Coming back to something interesting you said, which was you know to me it's a scoping issue. I mean, you're viewing this as more of an. It, it has broader ramifications than just getting drugs to people, right? It's a nation building. I'm not inclined to see things that way. Um, and when we talk about universality, the other thing I say is, you can have universality without the government doing everything. And we see that in a lot of other ways. What To, to me, what universality means is that nobody is left out. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that the government is the, the monopolist. And, you know, uh, from, a, from a guy who leans more to small government, I do believe the role of government is to ensure there's a safety net and that people don't fall through the cracks. I don't believe it's the government to necessarily be the provider of all of those things. They need to watch out for people slipping through the cracks. They don't need to be the ones that are necessarily delivering delivering every every single service. In this case they wouldn't be delivering though, right? In this case they would be pharmacies would deliver. They would sure. they would be the single buyer. Yeah. They're, but they're, plan. they're I guess it's a question of how much intervention is necessary to achieve the result we want, right? And and the risk fraud, I mean, I think um, I think it's very optimistic for, for one of the reasons you mentioned. I mean, this is also a provincial federal there's yes. overlap. Um, I, I just the the 
scale of this program too is 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 huge. Yeah. I mean, it, it dwarfs just about anything else on the table. And uh, you roll that in with all the other things we're talking about. We're talking about uh, spending to you know Green New Deal. We're talking about uh, daycare. I mean, the list goes on, and the price tag starts to get uh, pretty pretty hefty pretty fast. Well, so that's it. So let's actually let's talk about priorities then, because I mean, I'm a good social democrat. I like all of the uh, everything's priority. Fund. Yeah, everything <laughs> is a priority for me, especially if it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, but but we have to choose. You know, again, in the election, we talked about. Cheaper cell phone bills. We talked about better transportation. Yeah. We talked about dental care. We talked about pharmacare. We talked about uh, child care. We talked about all kinds of things. We yeah. can't have all of those. I, I respect that. Um, I think we can afford more of them than we currently do, but we can't help have all of those. <clears throat> um, let, let's start with the conservatives and work through the parties. Now, if you're if you're the conservatives, under what conditions would you cooperate with the government? We've got tax cuts. Yep. We've got, in theory, pipelines. I'm not sure if there'll be any pipeline legislation. Not probably not. But if there were, yes. yes. Anything else? Um, I mean, I think there's a long way to go on things like transparency and accountability measures. Um, yeah. You know, the Access to Information Act, as you well know, is broken. This on this we agree. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's a mess. And I didn't think it could get worse in the Harper years when it was pretty bad. But I think it's. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree it is worse now. So that's one. Um, look, uh, the liberals made some vague reference to looking for efficiencies in government. Uh, it's a $350 billion budget. Even if you don't take our libertarian view, there's probably some money in there that could be spent on things better rather yeah, than, yeah. you know, and, and I don't, I have not seen one of the frustrating things for me with the last government and even in their platform, they're not. Once the money's out the door in a program, it's just sort of on autopilot. And I, I'm saying, look, there's you've literally got thousands of um, streams of money going out the door. Why don't you check to see if that money is achieving what you said it would? And like target number one for me is the corporate welfare stuff. I yes. mean, you've got Navdeep Bain's <laughs> giving out two billion dollars to big business. It's just asserting it's creating all these jobs. Well, go check. I mean, why? I, I think uh, that's something if they're actually willing to look at. Um, checking the results on their programs. And I think, frankly, David, there's there's benefit for the government as well. If they can identify the ones that are working, that will give them uh, more credibility to say, well, we need to put more into them as long as you kill the ones that aren't. But we don't see that. We just see them saying, oh, we're just going to, we're not going to bother checking. The moment where, I mean, so I'm I'm torn on things like this because I agree with, I'm inclined to agree with you on this. Remember when the, they gave money to Loblaws for refrigerators? Yeah, yeah. Now, this is where I think we face a, a moment of reckoning. We want, we want companies and in, and and consumers to change their behavior because we need it. Sure. So in this case, it's climate change. We want eco-efficient sure. refrigeration, uh, and so we pay them to do it. Would they do it anyway? I mean, so this is what. When as long as we're talking about efficiencies, it seems to me that some of this money that's being given out is being given out for things that would be done anyway. Yeah, and that's generally the problem that that I have with with subsidies, whether that comes in the form of a direct payment or like, look, it's the same with the the tax credits that the conservatives put out, right? If you're giving people a transit tax credit, but they're taking the bus anyway, yeah. it's great they save money, but it's not, you're, you're not really doing it to induce any behavioral change, which is arguably the point of most of these measures. The fridge thing struck me as particularly interesting uh, because we've just been hearing for the last three years about how the 
purpose of the carbon tax is make the price higher, you'll induce behavioral change. They didn't do that with Loblaws. No. They didn't say, here's a fridge tax that'll incentivize you to have more energy. They gave them a subsidy. And I just thought the incongruity of saying, you consumers, we're going to use the stick, but for you, big business, we're going to give you the carrot. Yeah. I thought that that's, that's hard to swallow. I mean, if you were going to make that case consistently, um, and, and uh, you know, I think... You can't get around the law of supply and demand. Yeah. The question is, uh, politically, how much uh, how much are people willing to swallow? Well, let's talk about supply and demand then. Yeah. You oppose the carbon tax. Yes. I absolutely adore the carbon tax. I want one for every birthday and Christmas. and <laughs> I want, I'm want. i going to go trick-or-treating for one. I'm going to uh, give our supporters your email. I like. Please do. Oh, I mean, everybody has it already. They can. They know where to find me. Uh, the federal carbon, so now we need to distinguish. Um, some provinces have their own scheme, sure. British Columbia, for instance, uh, that isn't revenue neutral. The federal backstop, which is being um, um, forced on, I'll, I'll see the language, forced on provinces that don't adopt their own is, is meant to be revenue neutral. You, do you uh, oppose the carbon tax in principle, or do you think it doesn't work? I think the theory of carbon taxes is fine. I think the idea of loss of I don't dispute that. I also didn't dispute climate change, by the way. Yeah, I'm not, no. I'm not disputing that. Uh, I think the problem is partly specific, partly jurisdictional. Um, the, the, the problem right now is you have a federal government which kind of wants to have it both ways. They have, they, they're putting this tax on provinces. It's clear, I mean, you've had, however you want to slice it, at least a couple of premiers ran saying, I don't. I will oppose this. They were elected with a majority. I don't want to attribute that all to the carbon tax, but it shows that there is at least an, a, an acceptance that that will be part of what they were going to do if elected. Um, <clears throat> the problem with the carbon tax that we have right now is, despite the fact the liberals have insisted that this is the central tool they will use to get our emissions down, they have been very reluctant to acknowledge that it needs to rise substantially to get anywhere near hitting our targets. And I think that it is a mixed message to people to, on the one hand, insist this is the greatest challenge we face in our time, but also we, we're not committing to raising it as fast as it needs to go. And um, I think that matters to people. Like it's sort of go big or go home for me. And I would at least respect that intellectually. Um, I, and I also think, um, I would say this, I think that the it's true that in the election, a lot of voters have signaled they are very concerned about climate change yeah. and that they want governments to take action on climate change. I think that should not be conflated with attachment to a specific way to fight it. And you've seen other people who've written, like guys like Mark Jack or guys like Max Fawcett, who've argued that <clears throat> maybe the carbon tax alone as a tool is consuming so much political capital yes. that it's actually setting things back. And I think maybe it's time, I mean, I just wrote a piece this week that it's partly tongue in cheek, but if the, I mean, if the Trudeau government really wants to send a signal, they've been listening. I mean, do your worst on any other measure to fight climate change. But if you scrap the carbon tax, I think you actually remove a big obstacle because I can tell you, uh, you know, our group is only involved in this debate. We're not a, we're not an environmental organization. It's because it's a tax, and it's yeah. because our supporters are extremely worked up about it. And I, I mean, I can't really I can't overstate that enough. If you take that away, um, I think it's a whole new ball game, and I think you actually remove an impediment. So whether it's a good tool or not. Politically, it has become is poisoned the well so badly that I think it's it's proving to be an obstacle to any other sort of movement on this. I mean, so two things on that. First of all, I, I agree that, and I've read I've read Max and others talk about this that the focus on the carbon tax exclusively was a tactical error. That it was the carbon tax, the carbon tax, the carbon tax, and nothing else. And a couple months ago, I talked to Catherine McKenna. We sat down. I said, okay, well, carbon tax, and then what? 
and I found that there was very little interest in talking about anything except for the carbon tax. Yeah. Uh, which was strange because the, the, because the government does have a program that goes beyond the carbon tax. They have a fairly comprehensive plan. And they took great pains to say that, right? When people would point out, well, your tax doesn't get us there, they'd say, but, 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 we have all, th- all this other stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, no one else has worked up about those, all those other things. They're only worked up about the carbon tax. And yeah. so the question becomes, how much are you willing to devote to this one tool when you have this whole other arsenal at your disposal that you're, you you don't seem to want to emphasize. Yeah, I mean, I get, maybe the <clears> bet <throat> was they thought it was a it was a market mechanism, and so people on the in the center and the right would support it, and and a lot of people have. I mean, you know, lots of people support the tax. What what bothers me about it is the the patchwork scheme that it's not the same tax one province to the yeah. to the next because I think the revenue neutral model is the right model. And sure, but I, it's it's better than a not revenue neutral yeah, model. That's for sure because it does incentivize people to change their behavior, right? Including industry. I mean, it is it is a pretty light touch compared to what could be done, especially compared to some regulatory responses. But what I don't get is, I mean, you're right. The left, in fact, I would say the 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 proper progressive left, the farther left, and the right agree on this. It's not high enough. They yeah. agree for you know, different they reasons. come to different conclusions sure. <laughs> about what we ought to do about that. But it's not high enough. And yet, you know, some marginal return is still good for GHGs. Sure, well, uh, it, it's a question of lowering them. <laughs> it, it's a, I guess it's a, it's ROI, right? Like we can. It's, it's, to me, it's a bit like, you know, you ask people to make a great sacrifice. I think uh, a, a lot of people are willing to do that. If the impact is marginal, it becomes a more difficult proposition for a lot of people. So, for example, right. if if Canada was in, you know, was had its own atmosphere and the return on investment would be to arrest climate change, I think people could sort of say, mm, this sucks, but, you know, we can see the likelihood of the outcome of having a real a big impact. It's great. When, when, when you broaden the scope, a lot of people sort of say, well, yeah, I want to fight climate change, but am I willing to pay, how much am I willing to pay to do it? And how much am I willing, how much damage am I willing to inflict in the economy for something that might not end up having impact, depending, it's, it's contingent on other people. I recognize there's collective action problem and yeah, all that going sure. on. But um, I guess, to back up, one other thing, uh, the, the fact that this carbon tax has been layered, like a lot of the theory behind carbon taxes is you get rid of the regulation and put the price on, and then that will incentivize the market to move. They haven't done a lot of that removing the regulation. So what you get is not a tax replacing the regulation, you get it layered on top. And that is, I think, another principled objection that people who would otherwise support a carbon tax have is saying, okay, give me the one that the Nobel Prize winning economist supports and yeah. we can talk. That's but, 100 and a ton or something sure, like that. Sure, but it? it also involves removing a lot of that underlying regulation. Yeah. If you don't do that, you're not giving me what the guy who's you know endorsing, who got the Nobel Prize, in. you're giving me something different. You're giving me this hybrid beast that is may not uh, end up working the way you, you think it will. Is the worry then that it, it isn't painful enough to encourage innovation? Is that, I mean, is that the, th- so, I mean, again, the theory being that Look, if if you if you incentivize innovation, you're going to get innovation. If it costs less money to buy a product that is less carbon intensive, then yeah. you buy the carbon less carbon intensive product. If it costs more, you don't. And so there's an incentive then to produce these uh, less carbon intensive uh, sure. uh, products. Uh, Are you saying that's not going to happen? No, look, I I believe incentives matter. I believe in the role of incentives, and uh, the greater the incentive, the more likely you have people to pursue a different, like the course of action that gives them the most, right? What I am saying is that the carbon tax is really just designed, designed to piggyback on what's already there, right? If right. you, someone tomorrow can invent the, you know, a, an electric vehicle that's reliable and cheap, and I mean, they're going to make a zillion dollars. So 
the the carbon tax is is just designed to sort of enhance a pre-existing incentive. So whether you have a carbon tax or not, um, you're still going to have an incentive. And we're already seeing that. I mean, we already see uh, improvements in efficiency sort of across the board, especially in the in the in the rich world. Yeah. Um, for that reason, whether or not there's a carbon tax, yeah, the carbon tax in some instances might be able to accelerate that. The question is the trade-off. Um, when you don't have the carbon tax, there's no you know, there's no monetary trade-off. Uh, when you do, um, and I mean, we're seeing this in, uh, you know, we're seeing this in Western Canada, right? So I just worry that um, in order to be really effective, um, it would be so painful for some people that it's just not something they're ever prepared to swallow. Yeah, this is the point that I get stuck on, is that we will get marginal returns from a carbon tax, but everyone seems to agree, and but the government will never say it, that for it to be as effective as we need, we're going to have to ramp it up by a threefold or whatever. And it might politically, be. for obvious reasons. Yeah, right? you don't you don't want to tell people this is going to hurt, right? Because that's bad politics. But that's the real answer is if you really want to have a revolution in the way people organize their lives, it's going to have you're going to have to give them a really big reason to do it, either either subsidy end or by making it so prohibitively expensive that they can't afford to continue lifestyle. Yeah, and so the cognitive dissonance on that that gets me because you know we. When we tax cigarettes or alcohol, we very specifically often call it a sin tax, and no one <laughs> hides the fact that it's meant to make these these behaviors prohibitively expensive, or or expensive enough that right. for many overconsumption is prohibitive. And yet, when it comes to this, no one will say it. You're right, but it's interesting because most people, uh, even our supporters, I mean, they don't. Most of our supporters don't like any taxes, as you might expect. But yeah. they are they seem to be slightly more forgiving of sin taxes. Right? Cigarettes are bad. Alcohol is bad. So why not tax it? The problem with the carbon tax is though, all, even though obviously CO two, you know, da- damages our atmosphere, um, a lot of people view the things like driving their kids to hockey, right? Going to work. They don't view it as sinful. Even though it has a negative externality, they say these are necessities, right? They view it as, well, I'm not doing something terrible or abusing my body. I'm just going to work. I'm driving my kids to hockey. It's good usually. I mean, usually it's something, you know, you're either you're working, which we think of as good, you're community building, which we think of, you're driving a volunteer, which we think of as good. Well, and kids really play into this, right? Like I I tell you, before I, uh, before I had kids, I never owned a car. Yeah. I lived in the central cities. I used transit. It made sense to me. And and back then I sort of thought, why would you even have a car? I mean, this seems so much easier and cheaper to boot. Um, once you once you have a family, it's sort of like the idea of taking my three kids under seven out to the light rail station in January to wait for Like, it's just, it's a lot more challenging than uh, than it is when you don't have that situation. Sure. I mean, I, you know, it's funny is I often hear the example of, well, how do I get to hockey with my kids? And look, I am sympathetic to that. The answer is there is probably no public transit system you can design that makes getting two or three kids to hockey uh, efficient, even doable, right? I, I've been there. I was I played for years. I was a goalie. I was never getting on the bus with my hockey gear. <laughs> it's not doable. Uh, it, and yet, the, well, we could talk about improving public transportation to outside of the city core. Sure. Now, I, I happen to support uh, government intervention I often support the idea of a of a robust state. It, it's getting harder and harder to think of the government as a competent body when it comes to transit, though. Uh, you know, we're, we're in Ottawa right now. Sure. We're looking at the LRT. They've des- they've designed a system where if you're waiting for the train, you're being rained on. the The cover doesn't even cover folks who are waiting for the train. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but at, at what point do we say, look, the solutions to these problems are going to involve government because they are a collective action problem, and we need 
public transportation that gets to the suburbs. Yeah. Well, look, uh, transit is a tricky one because the the challenge is how do you predict how technology will evolve? So if you go back 20 years, the idea behind mass transit was, of course, what are the problems we have? Cars spew CO2. We have traffic jams. There's a huge loss of economic activity time. Like, it's all bad. Solution. Efficient, rapid transit so everyone's out of their cars. We get rid of all those problems. Fast forward to now, right? At the time people were designing these things, did anybody envision things like ride sharing? Not really. Did anybody envision autonomous vehicles becoming a serious reality? Like my question is, where are we going to be in 30 years? Like are we going to have a light rail system competing with zero emission autonomous vehicles that can talk to each other, thereby eliminating the pollution problem, yeah. eliminating the congestion problem. I mean, I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think there's a day, you know, in our lifetimes where nobody owns cars anymore and you subscribe to an Uber-like service sure. and you pay 300 bucks a month and you just have on-call electric autonomous vehicles picking people up and, and shipping them around. Yeah. And so... This is one example of something where it wasn't the government that fixed it and no one could have predicted how it was going to turn out. And yet the government in the interim felt compelled to, uh, as a stopgap measure, have things like this LRT. So look, I'm, I'm not against transit. I think it makes sense, especially where density calls for it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I disagree that it always has to be government running it for reasons that I think most people in Ottawa will appreciate yeah. now. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not sort of blanket against transit. I just, I think we need to be mindful of the fact the world can evolve in a way we can't always plan for. Oh, and yeah. so we need to like maybe have a little less faith in government's ability to predict all those things with, with accuracy. Oh, yeah. I mean, here, no, I, I agree. We're bad at predicting things, there's no doubt. And, and we're also bad at predicting how technology is going to transform our lives. And I don't love technological solutionism, especially when it comes to challenges like climate. But I also think it's going to be part of the solution, whether we like it or not. Well, it has to be. Um, the question, though, is, is what do you do when it... it how do you control it in the sense that Uber, Lyft, et cetera, et cetera, have not improved the, the traffic problem. They've made it worse. Yeah. We've got all these cars. And it's wildly inefficient. You've got all these cars driving around and it's not dense enough. So uh, I, part of it is, is the question of solving how do you work together to harness you know, private sector that's coming up with this technology yeah. in a way that is ultimately productive. Yeah. And the Uber model, the, the sort of move fast and break things model, I don't think has been successful. In fact, I think it's caused an awful mess in, in many cases. Um, but I'm, I'm watching the clock now. I've set aside a lot of time for this conversation, so I want to move on to it. Debts and deficits. Yes. <laughs> now. Bread and butter. Yes, this is the, this is, now we go to the to the belly of the beast. You've expressed concern over deficit and debt levels, and, and, and I want to get into that. Yeah. Because you have, on the one hand, economists that I'm sympathetic to who say, look, it's sustainable. Yep. The debt to GDP ratio was low. Kevin Milligan the other day pointed out that in fact the last time it was this low was the 1960s. Sure. It's sort of one percent of GDP. Uh, in the 90s, when we were in trouble, it was something like six percent. And that if if you were worried about the 1990s, a lot of things would have to go very very poorly sure. over a long time. So with that said, given that interest rates are low and you can make a good argument that now is the time to invest in things. What's the concern with debts and deficits? Boy, where to start? I mean, so first of all, first of all, <laughs> like, I, got a lot, I got a lot of time for, yes. for Kevin Milligan. I think he's obviously a very smart guy. Um, I, I, I would suggest he's maybe being a little 
uh, a little cavalier about the risk, right? I would put it this way. When you, when's the time to buy insurance, right? It's when things are good. You don't wait until things go sideways and then go looking for insurance because it's going to cost you more. And it's true things would have to go uh, wrong for it to become a serious problem again. Uh, the problem is uh, that has happened. It happened recently in 2008. Um, all the times, all the things that happened in the lead up to the crisis in the 1990s, nobody saw them coming. And so I, I, I'm a little wary of this. Well, let's not worry about it too much. I do worry about it because the last thing you want is it's only, a, it's never a problem until it is a problem. Sure. And the other thing I'd say is, um, the assumption that the borrowing is going to be spent in a way that yield, we talk about investment, right? Which is yes. a word I hate governments using because every, literally everything is an investment. I think most people take the word like in, in layman's terms, investment means something that you get a return on. Yeah. Um, and usually that means things like infrastructure that and liberals talked about this a lot when they got yes. elected the first time. What was the ultimate reality? They spent a lot of money on things that weren't investments. They were recurrent spending. And so I'm wary of even opening the door to this. Oh, we'll invest in everything. And it turns out it's all just money that goes out the door today on things that are consumed today and they don't actually yield some, like, it's not like the, it's not like most of the spending that's proposed is for, you know, bridges and, and roads. I mean, there was some transit, but a lot of this is not actually what I would consider to be investment. Right. Um, and I mean, there's also just the, um, there's that implicit assumption that, uh, that there isn't already quite a bit of money in government that you could just reallocate without spending. Um, I, I think if you look at places like, like Alberta, right, boom and bust Alberta, even they have spending issues now because they didn't save money in the good times. And even a lot of progressive folks are saying, well, if you'd done like Norway and socked it all the way into a fund, I mean, so I think it just goes to show you that. To me, when it comes to spending, there's two arguments and they just flip back and forth, right? We must we must run deficits now because the economy is weak and we must stimulate the economy. Yeah. Then the economy's hot. Oh, well, we can afford to spend now because I'm strong. I'm saying, look, if you're if you're gonna buy into the idea that uh, that there are times to spend and times to cut back, well, the time to cut back has to come sometime. Sure. So my question is, when is that? Uh, the liberals had a pretty good run. The economy was doing pretty well, and yet they're still running deficits. So my question is, why are you doing that now? Why are you not preparing for a future shock? The last thing I'd say is, it's true that, you know, just like, and I know people hate me using the credit card example, if you have a balance on your credit card, uh, you're paying interest on it, your salary goes up, you can carry that interest more easily, right? You, you can afford that. You're still wasting the money. Sure. You, you, we spend, you know, $26 billion a year. It's more than we spend on the military. We spend that on interest every year. And I'm like, if we didn't have that hanging over our head, we could actually fund most of the things that the liberals and even the Democrats want to do without going into debt. But it's because of previous decisions. And I'm not saying everything we ever spent on was a waste, but I'm willing to bet some of the things they spent money on before have not yielded a return that justifies using oh, money. Oh, so. without a doubt. I mean, of course, I, part of it is that you don't know what's going to yield a return and what's it's not always, but I will say that people from the left often make the balanced budget argument as well. I mean, this was an NDP talking point in 2015. It was uh, Tommy Douglas balanced the budget because he believed that- A lot you of new Democrat only, government, yeah. look, we disagree about the level of spending, yeah. but the principle that whatever we spend, we should be able to account for. I mean, look- it, it, So you can afford the programs Well, and in want. Ontario, it's super frustrating for us because we were ba we were banging the drum so loud every year saying, don't run this up because it's going to hurt later. And now, you know, Doug Ford, who's not even, frankly, doing a, 
aggressive job dealing with it. He's, He's spending, spending more, more money. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the people who are screaming the loudest now, I'm like, were you there at the time? You know, if you don't like painful cuts, don't put yourself in a position where uh, they become necessary. And so I, I can disagree with folks who want more spending as long as they're prepared to explain how they're going to pay for it in a way that isn't going to lead to some uh, some problems. Okay, so well, two things on that. One is uh, we can distinguish between programmatic deficit spending, sure. which we'd say, and I would keeping agree with the lights this. on. Spending. Yeah, we yeah. we don't we don't want uh, deficit spending for pharmacare. We don't want deficit spending for Medicare. We don't want deficit spending for childcare because it's not sustainable. Sure. If, if you can't afford that, then you can't afford it. Uh, compared to infrastructure spending, where you sure. would see a return, it's hard to get to work if you don't have roads. Um, so that's point one. Point two is this, though. Um, when when we look at the at the host of the budget, we say, okay, well, look, we have a spending problem. Why not recast it as a revenue problem? It's not that we spend too much; it's that we we collect too little. <laughs> well, one is, I mean, one is the our tax rates are competitive globally. It's not. Sure. We, we, in fact, our, in, in our government spending on on programs compared to the OECD is fairly low. Yeah. Look, yeah, federal. I mean, when you start yeah. adding, and it's the same with debt, right? People all often point to the debt GDP ratio and say, "Oh, well, it's only well." When you add in the provinces, it's not quite so rosy anymore, right? Like we're not the worst, and I don't want to. I'm not an alarmist in the sense that we're not Greece, and it's like ends not coming tomorrow. I'm just trying to uh, be more cautious or conservative than I think some others are yes. for reasons that, 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 you know, the world is unpredictable. Um, look, for it to be, for it to be a revenue problem, I, I would say this, I believe that the average person who is not very ideological. Which is, is the average person. Yes, Most people aren't. Absolutely. Right? The yeah. vast majority of people um, is willing to pay taxes up to the point where they feel they're no longer getting added value for every extra dollar they pay. And for the people that I deal with who are not, I don't even know if they're supporters or it's like a lot of talk radio call, yeah. you know, the, they get angry when they're asked to pay more, but they do not see the benefit. They say, I'm paying more in tax, my commute still sucks, I've still got a long wait for my mother-in-law at the hospital, my kid's school is overcrowded. They get very annoyed when they say, give me more, what am I getting for it? And if you look at places that will swallow higher tax rates, like some Scandinavian Nordic countries, it's because people have a lot of faith in the ability of government yeah. to deliver things. I don't think we're there yet in this country. No. I think a lot of people, uh, even people who are sympathetic to the idea of government generally, would agree that they do not always do the best job in delivering. And until you can square that circle, I think the idea of going back to people and asking for more is 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 difficult. No, I, I agree. I mean, and and it is it does become a self reinforcing problem, which is if if you starve the government of of the funds necessary to deliver, it looks like they don't know what they're doing. If it looks like they don't know what they're doing, you don't want to get more money. So part of that is incompetence, but largely part of it, I think, is that we don't you know we spend money inefficiently in some cases. We talk about corporate giveaways, which I oppose, uh, or we don't have enough. But I, I want to tackle this idea of, of whether or not we can afford these things because mm. the, a couple of years ago, economists look at the world and says, okay, the global net financial position is negative. Yeah. Somehow, which is a logical impossibility, it's impossible that more is, is um, owed than is owned. <laughs> <laughs> and yet there it was. And so the question was, well, how, how is that the case? And the answer was tax havens. That you know, an estimated something like up to fifteen trillion dollars around the world is being hidden in tax havens. Yeah, uh, bi billions and billions of which are accounted for in Canada yeah. or would be. Huge distortion. Um, the money is out there. Yeah. 
Do we not have some responsibility to go after it, to get it, and, and to have people pay their fair share? Because we're not talking about middle-class Canadians. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about millionaires and billionaires. Yeah. So a couple things on that. I mean, look, uh, we're our group is vocally opposed to tax evasion. If you're breaking the law to avoid taxes, uh, that is not appropriate. You shouldn't do that. And we tell everyone as loud as we can, don't do it. Yeah. Um, with tax savings in particular. So one of the reasons, this is one of the arguments in favor of simplifying the tax code. When you have a tax code that's so littered with loopholes and ways to escape, you empower only the people with the resources to exploit them, and that tends to be the very wealthy. So to me, that's a huge argument for tax reform. We can continue the debate about the right level of taxes, but let's make it clean and simple and avoid the ability to hide money this way. Do we have a comparatively complicated tax code? Um, yes. I mean, I mean, the U.S., I think, has the most complicated yes. of them all. Uh, they're but always the outlier, but yeah, we, ours is still, I mean, it's it's 3,000 3, pages. I mean, it's just not, it's a million words. It's not necessary. Um, you can raise the same level of money in much easier ways. Yeah. I guess the problem is that politically, every government that's come in has just kind of layered in their own bunch of complicated measures, and very few of them get removed. Yes. So the other thing I'd say is, while it sounds easy to do, um, and, you know, the Democrats have really went this, and you can see this in the states too with these proposals for uh, uh, targeting the super wealthy and the wealth taxes and the people with a high net worth. Um, the problem with that is there's not that many of those people. And so if you're going to build your revenue assumptions around a, a relatively small group, like I think it's 83 families or something in Canada that have these, the problem then becomes if only a few of them change their behavior – you're, you're going to see your numbers impacted a lot. So I don't lose right. a lot of sleep, yeah. David, about these super rich. Like, they're going to be fine, okay? They're going to be fine. I do worry about what it means for the rest of us in terms of revenue. If And I understand why you only target the super rich. It's really hard to, to, to feel sorry for them. I mean, if you've got your fourth yacht, no one's losing sleep over you having to pay a little extra tax. The problem is those people have options. And you can grab the money once. The question is the next year, are they going to be there to pay it? Maybe most of them will be. But even if, again, if we're talking about 83 families, say 80 of them just say, okay, I'll pay whatever. Even if three of them go, how much are you losing there? Oh, yeah. Right? And that, so I think we got to be mindful of that. I know that um, across the spectrum, it's frustrating for people to see, on the one hand, people with needs, and over here, people who have a lot. If it was a simple matter of just grabbing it, I mean, who wouldn't do it? The problem is it's it usually has unintended consequences. And we have to build policy around how people do react, not how we would just like hope. Well, I, in fact, and so I completely agree. I think the left has made a serious strategic error that they've ceded the taxation question to the ultra wealthy. I mean, mm. it is, it used to be, look, everybody has to pay. We need broad-based contributions and that includes the middle class. And then it became, there was this middle class orthodoxy and then it was, no, no, the middle class is sacrosanct. You don't tax them. And now the middle the class is inched up more yeah. and more into the upper middle. And it's interesting because that's one of the reasons when the, you talk about those two competing tax policies that conservatives and liberals said, the liberals are raising the basic personal exemption. Yeah. We prefer the conservative measure, not just because it was more simple, but because it's still, me like it's, we would rather have more people paying less tax than fewer people paying more tax because for that reason, you talk about, um, you know, building a society where everyone has a stake, right? I, I, we don't like high taxation, yeah. but it's better to have people feel like they have a stake and they're contributing. Um, so, you know, maybe not necessarily totally flat, but a, a less steep curve where people, even on the low end, are paying a little bit just so they feel invested in, in the system, right? Yeah, well, I... I certainly, and I certainly prefer that to boutique tax credits all day. Do you expect we're going to see some of those back? 
Uh, I hope not. I was yeah. glad the liberals got rid of a bunch of them. That was one of the great things they did with their tax. They brought a few in of their own, but it's fair to say they got rid of more than yeah. they brought in. Um, but I, uh, I would. We always prefer broad-based measures. It's simpler. It's cleaner. It's fairer. Um, if you're going to do tax relief, do it in a way that's not cherry picking. Just say. You know, if you earn a, if you earn a paycheck, you are going to save a little bit. Because conservatives, you know, boutique tax credits often look like attempts to socially engineer to social engineer, which conservatives are against. I thought. Well, they, it's interesting because they used to make the argument that um, they were sticky, right? We'll get them yeah. buried in the code and they'll never get rid of them. But if we cut the income taxes, well, the liberals will just reverse that. Yeah. And the opposite happened, right? Yeah. The liberals came in and said, "Nope, we're just going to cut income taxes." And get rid-. So I, I don't have much time for that politically yeah. sneaky theory anymore. Yeah, good. Okay, good. I mean, I, I think there's a consensus emerging that that they're silly and, you know, whether or not you like broad-based tax cuts or not, I think we can all agree that tax credits are often silly. Economists hate them too. Econo- even economists are, are... you. Yeah, if, if, if all of... Uh, if all economists agree on something, you know that it's either <laughs> absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And, and, and I, I think they all agree pretty much incorrectly that boutique tax credits are silly. But let's close on this. A fun question. How long do you think this government's going to last? Oh, I think it's pretty stable. I'd be surprised if it's less than two years. Like, yeah. they're only, what, 13 seats short, and they ha- can't find any dance partner. They got three options. And we're already seeing, you know, they've already found a couple things the conservatives will back them on. I expect the same with the NDP, maybe even the bloc. So I, I give this government a pretty long lifespan. Yeah, me too. So the average is two years uh, since the Pearson era. And uh, I, I think that idea of having multiple dance partners is core. I Absolutely. Because they, they only need be, one. And nobody wants to go back to the polls. Well, and, and no one can afford it. Yeah, I think the only party, I mean, I mean the conservatives, because they're the second biggest and they, they are the ones that can raise money. But I mean, f- everything I've heard about the other two opposition parties does not suggest they have the money to fight a campaign again anytime soon. And the conservatives have some internal issues to work out. It sounds sounds like. like it. We'll see after April. <laughs> well, that sadly brings us uh, to our time. I could talk about this all day. I, I could talk about this until the the bal- the budget balances itself. <laughs> I could talk about this until... It'll be a skeleton in the chair until- by the <laughs> Uh, my thanks to Aaron Woodrick for coming in today and, and introducing a little bit of debate in this debate program. Uh, Tamira Ahmad, as always, my producer, and uh, to each and every one of you for listening. Thank you so much, and we'll see you again soon as we continue to tackle uh, the issues that are open to debate. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.